of Daniel chapter 4, and I so appreciate the opportunity to preach here, and I really appreciate the opportunity to preach after that choir. Man, what a tremendous anointing. They ought to cut a CD. No, I'm just kidding. Amen. Daniel chapter 4. Maybe you've heard the story. Story goes that there was a little boy, probably around three years old, and he is at the front door of a house, and he is desperately trying to ring the doorbell. He's too short. And he is jumping and trying to press the doorbell button, and he keeps falling short. He comes down, he crouches, and he jumps up and tries to press the button again, and again he falls short. And as he's trying and not getting anywhere, an elderly man, let's say around 90 years old or so, walks along, is walking along the front of the house and sees this little boy trying, realizes what the little boy's trying to do, feels sorry for him. He opens the gate to this house, closes the gate behind him, begins to slowly make his way up the path, climbs up the steps, gets to the front door, and there's the little boy jumping and still can't reach the doorbell, and the elderly man reaches over the little boy and presses the doorbell so that it rings. The little boy looks at the man, and the man says to the little boy, and now what? And the little boy says, and now we run. And he took off running down the street. You know, I think that's the way God feels sometimes. He comes up to you and I that are as helpless as that little boy. Can you say amen in our ministry? We may be trying different things, not getting anywhere, and he graciously comes alongside us uh, and helps us, uh, blesses us, enlarges us, uh, gives us fruitfulness that we haven't done ourselves. uh, And then the moment we're blessed uh, and we begin to get what we so desire... If we're not careful, we leave God holding the bag. I want to uh, preach this evening on that subject. I've been pondering Alexander the Great lately. He's one of the great uh, figures of world history. At the age of 33, he ruled the largest empire up to that point that the world had ever known. At its zenith, Alexander Great had a dominion of 2.2 million square miles at 33. Most of us know him for the famous commentary that he wept that there were no more worlds to conquer. And Alexander the Great died at the age of 33 after a 10-day drinking binge. You know, there's a nagging question in life tonight, church. You and I that have been saved and served God and labor together, and sometimes we ask ourselves this, and that is, why is it that so often we see great men flame out. Why is it tonight that we can see men that are powerful, we can know these men, we can, we can appreciate the blessing that was upon their ministry, uh, only to see them crash and burn? And if we're honest tonight, if we have any self-examination at all, uh, we begin to ask ourselves, you know, God, uh, I want you to bless my ministry, God, I want to make impact, uh, but God, I don't want to be destroyed. I don't want to uh, enter that long list. I don't want to become a proverb in the land. 
I want to preach tonight, uh, this evening, a sermon called The Walk of Pride out of Daniel chapter 4. And you know, one of the things that we all learned when we first got sent out are the three G's of why men fail in ministry. Gold, glory, and girls. And then somebody came along and said, no, 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 then there's games. And somebody said, well, wait a minute, there's also golf. And then someone said, well, wait a minute, there's also guns. But we're in Prescott, so I'm not going to say that one. Uh, and then somebody else said, no, 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 there's guitars. And finally, in the year 2002, there's also gigabytes. But I want to examine one G tonight with you, and that's glory. Glory. And what glory can do if we're not careful. Daniel 4, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the, king, that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his, king, his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Father, I pray for the anointing of the Holy Ghost. God, stir us, O oh God. We are asking you to preserve us as a force in the earth. In Jesus' precious name, all of God's people said amen. I want you to consider tonight the well-worn path. Now, here in our text is the account where King Nebuchadnezzar uh, is strolling along uh, the incredible city of Babylon. Historians tell us that it was Nebuchadnezzar that built the hanging gardens of Babylon, which are considered uh, one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, while he's admiring his handiwork, verse 30, uh, the king spoke saying, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? He is immediately stricken with insanity uh, and it sets before us, beloved, uh, a prime example uh, of a frequent malady uh, of leaders uh, of every sort. Uh, and that is the temptation of pride uh, that comes from success uh, and achievement. 
This is such a, a common scenario, beloved, uh, that it has become a, a cliche. The Bible tonight is filled um, with the accounts of men um, who were nothing, um, that had nothing. Uh, God found them, uh, blessed them, raised them up. Uh, they become intoxicated with their success uh, and they crash. You could take that simple pattern, beloved, uh, go all through the Bible uh, again and again and again. Uh, we find it. Whether we're talking about Noah who uh, makes wine and gets drunk and passes out naked. Uh, whether we're talking about Gideon uh, and the ephod that turned into an idol. Saul, beloved, and his manic depression. Uh, David and Bathsheba. Solomon and his harem. Uh, Uzziah, who was marvelously helped uh, until he became strong uh, and his heart was lifted up uh, and he dies uh, a miserable leper. Uh, this is again and again in the Bible, beloved, uh, not because somehow those men were any different than us, uh, but if we're honest tonight, uh, we are capable of that. We are capable of that destiny. It is so easy tonight. Uh, we are so prone uh, to that uh, direction. There is something uh, within the human heart, beloved, that likes the warmth uh, of recognition uh, and respect uh, and it be can become dangerously alluring. Greek mythology. There's the story of Icarus and Daedalus. It's a story where Daedalus makes wings out of wax and eagle's feathers for his son Icarus. And, and as he begins to fly uh, in, the, in the sky, uh, he begins to ascend higher and higher towards the sun. Uh, and he's attracted to the warmth. Uh, and his father is warning him, uh, begin to descend, get, get lower and lower. But he's so attracted to the sun, uh, he flies higher and higher until the warmth of the sun uh, melts his wings uh, and he comes crashing uh, into the sea. Uh, I want to tell you there's a reason why that myth uh, uh, was uh, uh, passed on. Uh, in the Greek culture and that is beloved because it was seen uh, and it was simply a way to articulate such a common scenario of life and that is that when men uh, begin to bask in the glory uh, when men begin to enjoy blessing and favor uh, there is an appeal that glory has that you and I want to touch it we want to put our hand uh, upon it I believe it was Nigel that said this morning in the verse Luke 14 7 that says describes uh, religious men gathering for a meeting and it, the Bible says that Jesus noticed all those who came to the dinner were trying to sit near the head of the table. What a powerful insight into mankind. Jesus is sitting there. As these men are making their way into this dinner, uh, Jesus is not saying anything, beloved. Uh, he is simply watching. Uh, he's looking into the hearts of these men and the Bible says that it is obvious that every one of these men as they walked into that room were calculating and plotting and planning how can I ascend to the head of the table how can I promote myself how can I get to the top what do I have to do to get the limelight what do I have to do to touch the glory this is something that resides in our hearts See, our protestation is notwithstanding tonight. Uh, Jesus knew this was an issue with all men. You might as well say amen. Somebody said of Fidel Castro, when he goes to a wedding, he wants to be the bride, and when he goes to a funeral, he wants to be the corpse. <laughs> Richard Dortch, who was formerly uh, Jim Baker's right-hand man at PTL wrote a book called Fatal Conceit and he says this about himself all through my life in ministry 
I have known that a part of my nature is to desire power, make a name for myself, to gather attention around me, to have my own way. Sometimes I have conquered this desire, sometimes it has conquered me. I am deeply troubled by it because I know I am never more like the enemy of our souls than when I grab for power. So I believe that one of the reasons this happens is that we can suffer from a wrong concept or a distorted sense of destiny. Here's Nebuchadnezzar tonight. He is a cold man. If there's any, anyone who can claim calling tonight, it is Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, this is taught throughout the, the Word of God. Most of the minor prophets talk about this man, uh, talk about the, the raising up of Babylon and the purposes of God. Uh, even Daniel himself, as he interprets uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams of the kingdoms of man, uh, says, Nebuchadnezzar, yours is a golden kingdom. Here's a man that has a sense of destiny. He is a man that has a sense of calling, uh, and yet, beloved, if you and I are not careful to properly understand the role and the purpose of destiny, uh, it can lead to megalomania. You and I can begin to misunderstand what God is doing and why God is doing what He is doing in our lives, uh, begin to place ourselves in the center, uh, begin to think of ourselves as the focus of what God is doing, uh, and everybody else is kind of serving uh, in our purposes. Uh, and I want to tell you something very terrible begins to happen to a man. Alexander the Great is a fascinating man. And do you know that Alexander the Great is a man in the Bible, or a man rather, that the Bible spoke about in an Old Testament prophecy right to the T. There's not too many people in history other than the Lord Jesus, uh, John the Baptist, uh, maybe a few others, uh, where there's such a clear-cut Old Testament prophecy about a person's life. I want to read it to you. It's found in Daniel chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, and it says this, And I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with a furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat, goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the, the four winds of heaven. And every Bible commentator will tell you that prophecy reached 300 years into future, described when and Alexander the Great, coming from the West uh, in incredible speed, uh, broke the power of the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, ram was broken, uh, and uh, Greece uh, came into power, uh, and when Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided uh, into four smaller kingdoms uh, that began to set the stage uh, for the coming of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, the Word of God is true tonight. You can read Daniel 11, and it goes into the history there. I want to tell you, it is a fascinating thing. But what was very interesting to me is there's a story, a legend goes at least, that while Alexander the Great was alive and prospering, he encountered a seer in Egypt who showed him that prophecy. Can you imagine having somebody point out an ancient prophecy about your life? And as he saw that, uh, the legend goes that he developed a, mess a messianic complex. 
He looked at that. Uh, he didn't appreciate what destiny was all about. Uh, he began to see himself uh, as a God-man. He named 11 cities after himself. Uh, he began to uh, uh, search for more and more words. Uh, history says that he opened his court uh, to every kind of astrologer and magician uh, and pseudo-prophet that came along uh, as he now began to sense uh, that there was a higher purpose to his life uh, and he totally missed the mark. The end of his life, uh, he uh, was upset because he wanted to push into India and his men wouldn't go with him. Uh, and then uh, he uh, turned on his closest associate, Cletus, uh, and had him killed as a betrayer uh, and then ended up dying uh, a miserable, miserable death, uh, just as the prophecy said, beloved, uh, because there's something about destiny uh, and calling, if we're not careful, can distort us. Because every man of God here knows what it is to feel God elevate you. We all know what it is to have God help us. We know what it is to preach and see people respond uh, and to see us uh, risen up and doors open and opportunities uh, and begin to sense help uh, and grace from heaven. Uh, but I want to tell you, it, that can be intoxicating stuff. And if you and I do not have a proper perspective of destiny and purpose and calling, we can walk the path so many others have walked. I want you to consider tonight, secondly, the judgment of God. Because what strikes me in this text is God's swift judgment. Verse 31, the Bible says, while the words were still in the king's mouth. He's walking along, and as he's walking along, uh, and he begins to say and begin to speak and give glory to himself, uh, while the words were still in his mouth, uh, all of a sudden there's a voice from heaven that comes down and says, wait a minute, you've crossed the line. Let me tell you something about God tonight. He will not share his glory with anybody. He is still a jealous God. And he takes it personal tonight uh, when men begin to think that power and blessing emanate from them uh, rather than him. This is so important that we understand this. Moses goes into his presence. Uh, when he comes down from the mountain, uh, he is shining. There is a glory on him uh, that others can tell. Uh, but you and I know that is a reflected glory. All that was was Moses in the presence of God. And very quickly, uh, the glory began to dissipate in Moses. Uh, and he began to try to cover it up uh, and hold on to it. Uh, but Moses didn't produce that. Uh, he simply reflected what was happening when he was right with God. Mount of Transfiguration. I think it'd be a, it's, a, it's a great text to preach a about a, what a church service ought to be. The Bible says uh, as they go up into the mountain, uh, and there's Jesus transfigured uh, in their eyes, and there's uh, Moses and Elijah, and we know Peter uh, as he opens his mouth. Uh, this is great. This is wonderful. Let's build three tabernacles, uh, one for Moses uh, and one uh, for Elijah and one for Jesus. Uh, and the Father speaks out of heaven. Uh, and how many know uh, you had to do something really bad for the Father to speak out of heaven? Most of the time, God's pretty quiet, but he got ticked off. This is my beloved son. Earthquake happens. Peter and them hit the ground. They lift their eyes, and the Bible says the only thing they saw is what I believe we ought to see when we walk out of a church service. The Bible says they saw Jesus only. God's not going to share his glory, man. He's not going to share his glory, and I want to tell you what offends God is when he begins to help us and bless us and use us, we begin to think that somehow we're manufacturing this within ourselves. Acts 12, 
At its conclusion, the people gave Herod a great ovation, shouting, It is the voice of God and not of man. Instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with sickness so that he was filled with maggots and died because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving glory to God. I mean, God didn't just kill a man. He let worms get all over him. I think obviously what it's showing us is he, he just said, this guy's flesh. This is all it is. And there was something about Herod's spirit, Herod's attitude, Herod's posture that offended God. How many know God is good at humbling us when he wants to? I believe that God has a good time sometimes humbling us, humiliating us. I remember one time I was uh, traveling somewhere a few years ago and American Airlines had given me some upgrades to first class and I was in Dallas and I was flying from Dallas to Salt Lake City and, uh, and so I had called and they gave me an upgrade so from Dallas to Salt Lake I'm going to sit in first class. And I'm sitting there and I'm waiting for them to call first class passengers you know and I'm there I got my briefcase uh, and uh, and they said if you're in first class you can go ahead and board the plane you know and I get up grab my briefcase uh, and I forgot that I had left it open uh, stood up all everything flying out everywhere uh, just papers uh, picking up my bible and a uh, toothbrush all this stuff uh, every, and, and I could just see God up in heaven saying yes yes you tell me flying first class. <laughs> a friend of mine, a friend of mine that shall remain nameless told me the story. <laughs> you guys will love this one. He's at a Bible conference many years ago and our conferences were all very small. Not that many people in this conference morning seminar. He's been saved about three years, two or three years. Uh, and how many know that's when a lot of disciples begin to think they know everything? So he's sitting there on the front row, watching this guy preach a seminar, and he's sitting there, and he said to me, as he was hearing this guy preach, he said to himself, you know what, I can preach better than that guy. Oh, I'm so glad people don't think like that here. Yeah, I can preach better than that guy. And he's sitting there, and all of a sudden, this, uh, it was an evangelist, uh, goes down, walks right up to him and says, you know what, you think you can do better than I can, don't you? Come on, get up right now. Come on, do it. Now, if this is true, and it is true, that God will judge when men begin to want to touch his glory, then I want to tell you something tonight, church. That means that sometimes you're going to see over the period of time of serving God, high-profile men fall. And when they fall, that is a validation that God is at work among us. See, what happens sometimes is, you know, men fall, leaders leave, and things happen. It's like, well, what's the matter with our fellowship? What's wrong with us? I want to tell you, beloved, it's not what's wrong with us. It's what's right with us. Because what that says, beloved, is that God is still defending his glory. He is still preserving. That he still moves among men. And he still, beloved, preserves his work uh, and says, you know what, I'm not beholden to a personality. 
You know, in the book of Acts, you will find that God advanced the purposes of the church through judgment. Killed Ananias and Sapphira. Great fear came upon the church uh, and the church moved forward. Acts 19, the Bible says, uh, when the seven sons of Siva are beaten up uh, by, uh, by that devil, a great fear came upon the church. And they begin to get their hearts right and the work of God advanced. Uh, you can read that is why I believe Paul writes to Timothy and says uh, about those that are in leadership, them that sin, rebuke before all that others may fear. What it's saying is that, beloved, uh, there has to be a God in heaven who is working uh, and preserving his glory and says, I will judge this. Revelations 2.2, 2, Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. That wasn't an insult, that was a compliment. He no doubt is referring to Paul's final sermon to the leaders of Ephesus and said, when I'm gone, grievous wolves are going to come out among you uh, and they're not going to spare the flock. Uh, and uh, for all the problems of Ephesus, they hadn't forgot that. Uh, and here a few years later, Jesus is saying, uh, you know what? One thing uh, I've noticed is that you people have uh, allowed me to preserve uh, the integrity of this ministry. And he will judge. Listen to me tonight. He will judge. When men that he has blessed and helped and used powerfully begin to love the limelight and want to touch the glory and begin to think, this belongs to me. This is what I have done. This is what I have achieved. And I want to take it one step further tonight. The method of judgment was insanity. The king was smitten with insanity. He lost all sense of reason and he was unable to function. When God did this to Nebuchadnezzar, you could not have sat down with him over a cup of coffee and solved the problem. You could not have written a letter to him that could have turned him or persuaded him. Nobody could have said, well, we just need to reach out to Nebuchadnezzar. Poor guy, if someone would just simply reach out to him. God was judging him. And when God judges a man, he simply makes him unreasonable. He made him crazy. Now, how many here, how many pastors here have ever had a nut in your church? We all, how many have here have had Elijah show up at your church? I used to pastor in Las Vegas, New Mexico, and that is known for the state mental institution of New Mexico. And, and so we had our share of, uh, of uh, reason-challenged people. That would come through. I had a, you know, I, I remember one service having this man come to me and introduce himself as Alpha. I said, I'm Pastor Ruby. And he said, that's right. Alpha and Omega. First and the last. Uh, -ta -ta -ta. Like, uh, this will be the first and the last time you come here. I remember one guy years ago, a friend of ours from high school got saved right around the same time as Fred and I, and he, uh, he got involved in, you know, the Pentecostal, uh, you know, R.W. Shambach thing, and he was into him, and, you know, he went to another church, but he'd go out street preaching with us sometimes, and one day, uh, Sulai and I were going door to door in, in his neighborhood, and we knocked on his door, we hadn't seen him in a while, and we opened the door, and he was standing there, and he had a mohawk, so I said, something's not right. Now, I am not, uh, you know, the most discerning person in the world, but I knew he was off because his dog came up and his dog had a mohawk too.
we laugh about that. But how many know it's one thing to have psychos in the church. It's another thing when the pastor becomes the psycho. You know, think about it. Imagine if you were a pilot and you were flying a plane. And you're in that plane and all of a sudden, uh, in the middle of flight, you lost all reason. You lost all sense of judgment. I know America West, I know about that. But you know, you lose all sense of judgment. Imagine a surgeon uh, who's performing intricate uh, neurosurgery on the brain uh, and all of a sudden he has a mind wipe uh, and he can't re- figure out what he's doing uh, and the, the danger, the imperil that it puts other people in. I want to tell you something this evening. Uh, that can happen. That can happen in ministry. Where uh, because what we touch the glory, we begin to th- something begins to happen. God can lift Himself from us, uh, and all of a sudden you have a man in places of power and people depending on Him to do the right thing, and He has now become unreasonable. He can no longer govern. The normal faculties of leadership have left Him. My good friend Les Uptain has written on a lamp the words. The man who is of a sound mind is the man who keeps the inner madman under lock and key. <laughs> Listen to me right here, because, you know, there's one very powerful truth here we cannot ignore this evening, and that is that there's an element of grace. That God places on a leader that he can lift whenever he wants to. There's an element of grace that God puts on a man that he can lift whenever he wants to. Saul becomes a manic. He is a man that can go into a prayer meeting and pray louder than everybody. And also be inflamed to rage and hate and unspeakable violence. King Ahab has sent a lying spirit. image of heaven, the angels figuring out how are we going to get this man uh, and God says we'll send a lying spirit to him and there's something in this man's heart at this point that is now open uh, to be lied to and deceived, uh, I want to tell you that there's a grace that God puts on leadership uh, and beloved he can lift his hand uh, and if you don't think that you can become a Saul or an Ahab, I want to tell you something man if God takes his hand, any one of us can do that Nabal, what a powerful picture tonight. Here is a man who is a wealthy man. He is a prosperous man uh, and he has flocks and herds, uh, but he is oblivious uh, to the covering of God protecting his herd. He is oblivious. He has no idea that David and his men uh, are standing guard to protect his flock. uh, And this man is enjoying the blessing and the wealth and the abundance uh, during the time of the shearing of the sheep. Uh, The men uh, of David are sent uh, and say, look, uh, we've been protecting your flock. Uh, Will you please give us something? Uh, And in his pride and his obstinance, uh, who is David? Who do you think you are? Uh, This is my uh, sheep. These are my servants. This is my wealth. Uh, And beloved, uh, he didn't even appreciate uh, that there was a supernatural protection upon that work. Oh man, I want to tell you something tonight. There has to be a supernatural grace over our ministry. It isn't all up to us, amen. I've got to believe tonight that while I'm in Prescott Conference uh, that Jesus Christ uh, and his angels uh, are standing guard over that flock in San Antonio tonight, amen. I have to believe, beloved, that there's more involved in the church than human enterprise. 
powerful personalities uh, and capable speaking. Uh, I believe tonight there has to be a supernatural dimension. Uh, but I want to tell you, a leader can begin to forget that, uh, begin to think, you know what, no, no, I'm doing all this is all mine, uh, and not even recognize that supernatural grace, uh, and then one day it's gone. It's taken from you. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain to build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. I was a young pastor. I went out about 20 years ago. And just various places. I saw on TV a preacher. Odd, oddball. This guy would sit on a throne, had a hat like a fedora, sunglasses, smoke a pipe. How many know what I'm talking about? And he would sit there and he would just spout and bark out things and just a strange, odd, uh, say, well, 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 who is this psycho? What's going on? Uh, and so I called Pastor Mitchell. I figured if he, anybody know, wants, wants to low down on a psycho, he'll, he'll probably know, you know. And so I asked him, said, you know, I, I, I remember the guy. I knew he would know the story. And he told me this story. He said, this man, back years ago when Pastor Mitchell was a younger preacher, was an overseer for Assemblies of God in California, part of California. Roe co-wrote a very, very popular book on the Pentecostal experience, Wellsprings of Pentecostalism. He was one of the first television preachers. He was known and respected as a great Bible teacher. Ministry, blessing, fruitfulness, enlargement. And yet by the time I come around, he's sitting on a throne on television with the fedora sunglasses, smoking a pipe, cursing profanity, twisted and warped. I hear that he now has a concubine doctrine. Totally insane. Because I want to tell you tonight, God can just simply take his hand off a man and that's what you become. There is a supernatural grace. The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar begins to uh, grow feathers. He begins to, uh, his nails begin to grow, uh, and you look at him, uh, and all the beastly qualities of a uh, fallen nature begin to emerge and dominate uh, as he lives uh, and he eats uh, of the grass, uh, and he is just covered uh, and uh, just totally messed up, uh, those beastly qualities. You know, you have to ask yourself sometimes, when you see a man fall into immorality and a man fall into financial impropriety, that the real issue isn't that at all. He's insane. Because God let him be insane. And those primal urges, if you will, dominate and take control. And you know what else it means tonight if we take it even a step further? Is that God can take the kingdom and he can give it to somebody else. The Bible says he was driven from the palace for seven years. We underestimate this truth. Daniel 4.17, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of man, he gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. 1 Samuel 15.28, the Lord has taken the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Acts 1.20, let another take his office. You know what that tells me tonight? That tells me that all ministry, beloved, belongs to God. We are stewards. We are not proprietors. And God tonight, when a man touches the glory, can simply take that man and remove him and just put somebody else here. I 
Is this not great Babylon that I have built? And he just said, no, 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 you didn't do this. I'm going to take you. I'm going to put you here. I'm going to grab somebody else and I'm going to install them because I did this. Judgment. 1990. I don't want to be morbid. 1990, if you were to see the January conference 13 years ago, look at that flyer. You'd see Pastor Mitchell, Pastor Campbell, Pastor Warner. That's it. I know men who told me that, well, ever since 1990, the fellowship has never been the same. There are people still today that are mourning for Saul. It's not the same. It's just not the same. Not the caliber of preaching and on and on and on. I want to tell you, beloved, either it's the work of God or it's not. And it's not beholden the human personality. Our little sliver of the fellowship down in Texas. God has helped us. I'm not trying to blow a horn here. Believe me, I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm painfully aware of these truths I'm preaching on. But today, out of the San Antonio church and the baby churches, that have, grandbaby churches, there are 35 churches. Do you realize that all that happened after the split? 1990. I was pondering that. I've been pondering these thoughts. Uh, and I realized, you know what? To Jesus says, you know, you, you enter into other men's labors. That, beloved, I don't understand it all. I don't have it all figured out. But all I know uh, is that even when personalities uh, become megalomaniacs and people go their own way, that God is true to what he's going to do. And no worries. Uh, I'll just simply take what I would have given him and I'll just give it to that little guy over there. There are men here tonight that uh, you're, you're laboring this idea. You know, I'll, I'll never be like uh, that guy. I'll never have the ministry of that guy. That's a lie from hell tonight. Uh, God is true to his word, beloved. Uh, and he's going to move uh, in spite of what men do. He will simply say, you know what I'll do? I'll just take it from him and I'll give it to him. Uh, and you better take care of it. Yes, sir. I brought you in and I'll take you out. Promotion cometh neither from the east nor the west nor the south. God is the judge. He puts one down and he sets up another. I need to close and talk to you about the mercy of God tonight. Let's talk for a minute about a prescription for mental health. How many say, you know what, I don't want to go insane. God, if you could make me fruitful. God, if you could give me revival like I've seen with uh, Pastor Mitchell or Pastor Warner, uh, you know, God, if you could, I want that, but please don't make me crazy. If you're going to do that, then maybe not quite that size of ministry. Your answer tonight for mental health in the ministry is not Paxil or St. John's Wart. I want to help you tonight. I want to leave you with three simple thoughts tonight that will keep you sane in revival. Number one, Stay involved with people. Stay involved with people. People will keep you grounded. You know, Pastor Warner had the jumper cables. Uh, one of them is meant to keep you grounded. How many know, beloved, if, if it's all just this, if it's all just the excitement of preaching, or a little bit of, you get your, your head so big, uh, but when you deal with real people and real issues, uh, I don't know how these mega church pastors do it. 
They don't talk to anybody except their bodyguard. Uh, they get up, preach their sermon. Uh, they escape through a back door into their uh, uh, Mercedes, uh, and they're down the road. Hobnobbing with nothing but a bunch of uh, big names, uh, very elitist in their private jets. Uh, how could you possibly stay grounded like that? Every one of us, we can have the wonderful glory of conference. We all got to go home on Sunday, man. People don't care. I don't care what you've done uh, here in conference. Uh, they want to talk to you. Arrogance is when you dismiss people as being unimportant or insignificant. This man has enslaved an entire nation to build his ambition, the city of Babylon, much like Saddam Hussein. And now he walks around, this is what I've done. I want to tell you something tonight. Arrogance in the ministry, thinking that you can just write people off, you can dismiss people as insignificant, unimportant, unnecessary, I tell you, you know, I, I think that ticks God off. I believe, beloved, you can read it through your own self, do your own study. Uh, why in the book of Kings, God continues to bring up the violation of Uriah. He, he speaks about the violation uh, of Naboth. Uh, here were men, they were powerless men. They were men uh, who had no influence. They had no say-so. And powerful, more powerful men uh, stepped on them and squished them uh, to get their own advantage. Uh, and God stepped in and said, you know what? Uh, you're not dealing with them. You're dealing with me. That ticks me off. I want to tell you, you, want, you, want, you don't want to fall by the wayside. I say, how can I avoid what happened to some of these men? I want to give you a little secret tonight. Uh, some of these guys got quite a bit cocky and arrogant. Begin to use this pulpit in this conference to attack people. I, you know, I, you know, I, I, I often wonder, you know what, what was it that caused them to become so unreasonable? And I start to wonder, I wonder if maybe God got a little ticked off when they used such a wonderful forum to just attack somebody. If God said, wait a minute, no, you're not going to do that. You need a little humility here in this pulpit. Amen. I had a chance to preach the Gallup Conference last April. What a glorious church, conference, Gallup, Pastor Payne. Thursday night, just, just, just tremendous. I mean, the sun, the, 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 you know, I forgot how beautiful New Mexico was. Preach that Thursday night. It's great. You can't go wrong in that atmosphere, you know. And just, I leave Friday morning, get up, uh, drive to Albuquerque Airport, get on the plane, get back to San Antonio. And Friday night, I'm teaching the teen Bible study. Quite a bit different atmosphere than Thursday night in Gallup Conference. Thursday night, they're wearing suits. Uh, they have their Bibles. Uh, opening altars are filled Friday night. You know, and uh, writing notes, uh, you know, are you bored? Check yes or no, you know. But oh, beloved, you know what? I need that. God help me, I need that. Number two. Number one, stay, stay connected to people. Stay grounded with people. Number two, be willing to repent. You know, this is a self-testimony. This is Nebuchadnezzar standing on a Saturday night. We're going to have Nebuchadnezzar come and testify. This is a testimony. He's saying, you know what? I was messed up. 
At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. And his own personal testimonies. You know what? I had lost my, my mind, man. I had gone nuts. But you know what? I want to tell you, if you're here and you're insane, there's hope tonight. To be able to come to an altar and lift your eyes towards heaven and say, God, you know what? Please forgive me. God, I repent. God, I'm sorry. And he'll hear you, man. You can repent. It's not too late. There's hope. Number three, and I want to just leave you with two more things very quickly. Number one, uh, number three, number one, is this, listen to a warning. You know what the most amazing thing about this whole story is to me? Verse 29 says, at the end of 12 months. You know why it says that? It says that because one year earlier, he had had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar saw this great tree chopped down and, and uh, 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 irons attached to it uh, and he didn't know what to do and Daniel comes along and interprets the dream uh, and he gives him a year's warning in advance. Uh, you are getting filled with pride. Uh, you have become haughty in your spirit uh, and God is going to cut you down to size. And uh, Daniel goes on uh, and he even uh, encourages him and says these words to him, O king, uh, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. This took place one year before. That meant God was dealing with this man. God was moving on his life. Uh, and yet, beloved, uh, the tragedy happens. Uh, and I believe tonight, whenever you see a crash, uh, whenever you see destruction, uh, you can trace it back somewhere beforehand. Uh, there was a warning. God was trying to get your attention. God was trying to turn it. God was trying to speak. But sometimes we just totally blow the warnings off. I remember a number of conferences ago hearing somebody give a powerful interpretation challenging men to repent of pride and arrogance uh, and I couldn't help it. Maybe I'm wrong to confess this. I turned uh, and there was a group of men that I knew personally uh, that were consumed with rebellion standing right next to this guy as he's giving this interpretation. I couldn't help but notice the irony. You know, According to Jim Baker in his book, I Was Wrong, and Richard Dorch's book, Fatal Conceit, one year before PTL was exposed and destroyed, David Wilkerson called Richard Dorch on the phone and said, God spoke to me uh, that if you do not clean your house, PTL will not exist in one year. He warned him. Richard Dorch said he thanked him, invited David Wilkerson to come and speak to all the employees. David Wilkerson wouldn't do it. He said, I've done my part. One year to the, to the month, Jim Baker is exposed and a ministry that brought him $3 million a month fell apart one year later because they wouldn't listen to a warning. One last thing. There's another choice. See, man, this is, this is kind of depressing what you're preaching on. I want to encourage you tonight that in this story there is another option or another pattern. Nebuchadnezzar and so many before him and after him we all know about. But there's another pattern of a successful, fruitful, enduring ministry, beloved, where there's no record of this ever happening. And it's the other person in our story. His name is Daniel. Daniel's an amazing man. 
Here's the man uh, who survives the caprice of kings, the vicissitudes of life, 60 years in exile. Kingdoms transform, uh, invasions take place, uh, Babylon is overrun by the Medes and, the, and then the Persians, uh, and uh, this man survives it all, thrives in revival personally, lays hold of God, filled with dreams and visions, uh, no record uh, of Daniel losing his mind, no testimony of adultery. The Bible even says uh, that private investigators were hired uh, to try to find something wrong with Daniel, uh, and they could find no Monica in his life. The only thing they said about Daniel is the man likes to pray. And that tells me something. You know what, God, I would rather be a Daniel than a Nebuchadnezzar. God, you know what, Dad, you know, if there's hope, I want to be a survivor. I want to survive the ups and downs of life. I want to survive when things change and things turn and what is popular is unpopular uh, and, uh, and uh, this happens and princes are walking and servants are on horses. Uh, God, I want to be able to survive that. Thrive. Why was he able to do that? Why is Daniel able to survive and so many others don't? You know, one thing I will say about Daniel is that Daniel had a right understanding of destiny. The young man, he has taken, some believe he may have been 10 to 15 years old when he was taken into Babylon in exile. Immediately, God shows him out of Jeremiah that this is a 70-year plan. And somehow Daniel understood that destiny is what it is, and he is to serve that purpose. It was not about him. And that if he would remain a right, in right relationship to the purposes of God, God would help him, uh, but it wasn't about him. It wasn't Daniel's destiny. It wasn't Daniel's calling. It wasn't Daniel's purpose. It was the purposes of God. I need to stand apart from and treat as something sacred. Rather than when am I going to get my shot? Why is this guy being promoted and not me? Somehow he was able to do that. I think of John the Baptist uh, who said, listen, uh, the one who's coming, uh, I'm not even worthy to, to uh, tie his shoelaces. I think of the Apostle Paul who says, I am not the, I am the, I am the spouse you uh, to another. I am not what this is all about. Uh, I'm just simply trying to get you to serve the one who is coming uh, and I'm out of the picture. I think about men like Philip, beloved, that had powerful uh, revival and had the spotlight uh, shown upon his ministry in Acts chapter 8. Uh, and yet later on we find him uh, faithfully serving a, a wonderful family, four virgin daughters that prophesy, serving the purposes of God, saying, God, I don't have to be in the spotlight. And I think about Philip and I think about men like Daniel and I say, you know what, God, give me that kind of heart that can treat with respect and honor, the glory and the power, and say, God, I don't have to be in the forefront. God, I'm just going to serve your purposes, and I want to survive. I want to survive the plan and the purpose of God. Let me just close with this last quote. I read somewhere, a pastor said, I was never at peace in my ministry until I realized God did not want me to be great. I was never at peace in my ministry until I realized that God did not want me to be great. Let's bow our heads.